Hey, hey, water coolians, welcome back. And I, I just hope you don't love me too much. Because in today's episode, we are joined by the incredibly talented Lucy Dwyer, host of Learning Tings, to explore the ins and outs of parasocial relationships and share from, you know, both of our own experiences that we've had in this space, the impact of those types of relationships, both from the creator perspective and, you know, from the fan side, we all have those, and why most of the time it's okay to have those one-sided connections. Well, you know, when it's done in a healthy manner, of course, you know, because sometimes parasocial relationships do and can benefit everyone involved. Take Taylor Swift to Travis Kelsey in the NFL. You know, the amount of content being built around these two is actually insane to think about. We're talking about it right now. But in this case, we as the fans are enjoying it. Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey seem to be enjoying it. Their brands are definitely freaking enjoying it. Taylor just had a massively successful registered to vote campaign. Travis's podcast with his brother gained a buttload of new listeners. And kind of the like quietly, I'm kind of back here, but I'm reaping a lot of the benefits. The NFL finally reached a demographic they have previously spent millions upon millions and probably a hundred times more trying to capture. But... The pitfalls and the dangers come, you know, when we begin to make those assumptions, when we, you know, don't have anywhere near a full deck of cards, and we get trapped under the wordplay of making an ass out of you and me. And that's where memes come into play. I know, listener. I know. A-plus transition. I just can't miss. But hear me out here. The first story Lucy and I cover in our conversation deals with meme marketing and specifically the marketing around the dual release of Barbie and Oppenheimer, or Barbenheimer. And as advertising agencies and PR brands uh, begin to become more aware of what works for the current target demographic, they better understand the importance of rooting themselves in authenticity and genuine connection. We know when you as a company, we know, we know, we're not dumb. We know when you as a company are doing an inauthentic, hey, fellow kids, check out these memes campaign. We want real deep relationships. We want to be sold the fact that you actually care. It's not that hard. It's, it's really not. And as content creators, sometimes that means just putting in a bit more time. Sometimes it means trusting your audience just a bit more. And sometimes it means giving a huge thanks to listeners like Tamiko M from Japan for submitting our second story of the episode about influencer farms and parasocial relationships. If you have a story you want on the show, DM us on Instagram at watercoolertalkpod. We'll get back to you. But actually realizing that people who are giving you an opportunity to do something you love aren't just numbers. They're not just statistics. They're not just ones and zeros. They are real people, just like you and me, with, you know, way more complex lives than I think any of us need. And if I can kind of wrap this up and steal a slogan from someone who I think lost a bit of that focus of what the slogan meant when we did get a chance to have a few more cards from the deck. You know, be kind to one another. It's not that hard. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is episode 87 of Water Cooler Talk podcast titled Authenticity with Lucy Dwyer. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not. Because they're real. 
I, I struggle sometimes with the American accent because some of your words, there are too many R's in there for me to pronounce all of them. <laughs> and sometimes I'm really just swearing into my microphone, doing the same line four times in a row. I wish I could think of a word right now as an example, but there are some that seriously trip me up. I do this, like some voice like practice I do is like reading uh, The Chaos. It's just like this long poem that has like different pronunciations of different uh, uh, words in the US and like words that should rhyme, but don't mm -hmm. rhyme. And it just perfectly explains like how difficult sometimes the English language is. So if there's any time like somebody speaking two languages and English is one of uh, their second language, I'm always like, that's more impressive than the other way around. Oh my God, a hundred percent. I've always thought that the person in the room who can speak the most amount of languages is the most powerful to me. I just think it is the coolest thing in the world. But I, I, I agree. I cannot imagine learning English as a second language. Think about the word bear. Bear as in the animal. Bear as in I can't bear to be there. Bear as in you are bare naked. Like, <laughs> the poor things. <laughs> and when you get into like the throughs and the throws and the, it's just like, it doesn't even make sense. So props to them. <laughs> well, all right, Lucy, are you ready to jump into our first news story here today? Please. This is from Indie 100 Showbiz, written by Sinead Butler, August 20th, 2023. Woman named Barbie Oppenheimer says she's having trouble checking into hotels. With the release of the Barbie movie in Oppenheimer on the same weekend earlier this summer, everyone was feeling Barbenheimer fever, none more so than Barbara Oppenheimer. Yeah, that's her real name. Barbara, which, fun fact, is Barbie's real name, is connected to the famous theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer through her husband's father, who happened to be a third cousin. Barbara Oppenheimer stated, I had college friends around the world texting me that the weekend when the movies came out. With the whole schmear, you know, the bomb and the bombshell, it's pretty funny. It was a brilliant thing that they launched them together. It really brought people back to the theaters. Since Barbenheimer has been everywhere this summer, it seems others find Barbara's name hard to believe which can make things like checking into hotels an interesting experience. She shared, I'm on vacation right now, and when I checked in at the hotel, I said, Barbie Oppenheimer. The guy said, are you pulling my leg? In a world where connections can be as unexpected as they are delightful, Barbenheimer fever reminds us that sometimes life's coincidences can bring forth laughter and connection. So we both share the experience of seeing the Oppenheimer Barbie double feature. Uh, and yes, I, I, I truly believe that's the correct way to view them. And I do believe a lot of the hype behind those movies made the Barbenheimer fever into a, a societal phenomenon that we wanted to share together. And we wanted to build some sort of connection between these two, whether it be existential dread or the corruption of power. But also, these were both massive blockbuster films that brought people to the theaters, people dressed up. I don't know if you got into like the whole wearing pink. Uh, it felt like what we expected the roaring 20s of the 21st century to be, uh, you know, but really just for a moment of time, it kind of just passed. Do you share that same sentiment of this being an iconic cultural moment or was it overplayed as just two movies coming out at the same time? No, I, th I think this one, I think this was a big deal because we, the film industry was really suffering after COVID. I don't know about yourself, but I actually lost a lot of cinema stamina as I'm referring to it these days. <laughs> the idea of sitting down for three hours in a room where I can't, you know, pause it, go to the bathroom, go and get myself a snack, just, I don't know, have a moment. I struggle now to sit through a three-hour film. Luckily, Oppenheimer was very good, so it it actually flew by for me. I d that did not feel like a lengthy three-hour movie, but it brought people to the cinema in a way that we have not seen in a few years, 
And only, I think this morning, I was looking at all the new movies coming out on YouTube. I just kept getting new trailer after new trailer after new trailer, all these fantastic looking films coming out that I feel we haven't seen for the past three years. You know, that mm -hmm. constant every Thursday night. I'm not sure. What is the day in America that new films come out during the week? Uh, Thursday, yeah. Thursday night's going to be kind of the release yeah, night for them. Yeah, so it's, it must be... It must be global then. So every Thursday, a new movie would be coming out. And for three years or so, we really didn't get any. So now I think, yeah, I think Barbenheimer really kicked it off and it got movie fever back into people's frontal cortex, if you will. <laughs> yeah, it made it seem like going to the movies can now be an event. It's not just I'm going to the movie and then I'm going home, but it's like I'm dressing up to go to the movie. I'm going to dinner. I'm going to get drinks. I'm having this whole experience. And obviously, you know, I don't know what kind of theaters they have there in Australia, but we have different theaters that offer expensive ones. Yeah, the more expensive <laughs> ones where you can get drinks at your seats <laughs> and you can get dinner at your seats. But those are, are becoming more popular because I think people want this option of, yeah, I can watch this movie at home. And I think, you know, Barbie just started streaming. Did it? Is it already on streaming? I believe so. I just might have just seen it or it's coming soon. Uh, probably by the time this episode comes out, it will be on streaming. No way. You can currently watch it on YouTube, Google Play, Apple is. TV. Yep. You just have to pay the $30. <laughs> it's so funny. We're about to get into like yeah. meme marketing <laughs> and like pretty much right there. Like that was an example of this movie. Obviously, I think you have to have really good movies and people want to go see these movies and the hype around them has to be like, you know, if people went to see Barbie or Oppenheimer and like, wow, those movies really sucked all that hype would have been just dead. And we wouldn't have had this iconic cultural moment. But the fact that we're still talking about it and people still want to talk about it and people are still talking about it. I was just in the city today picking up some tickets and I heard the, the Ken song just blasting out of someone's car as they're driving by. It's like these things are so important, I think, to building the culture of, you know, a society when we can have these things that we connect with together after all that time of not connecting with each other. Yeah. And I, I'm currently researching Shirley Temple for a, an episode of my podcast and an interesting quote that I'm going to butcher, but you're going to fix it with your little machete sound in a second here. We thought it was only right for the first correction to be done by Lucy herself. It's not actually a machete. It's a golf swing. Um, it was... What's his name? One of the one of the old presidents. He said something along the lines of how nice it is for Americans to be able to go to a a film for sixteen cents and look at a, a small girl's child and, and forget about your troubles for a bit. Cue that sound effect there to tell me which president that was. <laughs> the president was Franklin D. Roosevelt, and he said it was a splendid thing that for just fifteen cents an American can go to a movie and look at the smiling face of a baby. And forget his troubles. But it, it's, it was such a, an interesting quote to read because it, it does ring true today. Mind you, it's not quite 16 cents or whatever the figure was to go to the movies these days. But I think it's the movies and theatre going and entertainment in, in general is something that us as humans really latch onto. It is so important, I think, for our sense of self. I don't know why I would love to actually look into why we like to look like that escapism maybe I'm not sure but yeah I think you're right it's it's just it was a such a big event to dress up to get involved in it and it, it really brought the passion back yeah and I think it's something along the lines of 
even though you are sitting in this dark theater, but you're surrounded by people, you're reacting together, you're laughing at jokes together, you're being like, oh, you're crying together, you're feeling sad together, you're feeling mad together. You know, those are some of my favorite movies experiences. And I know some people don't like when other people are talking in the movie. But for me, that like creates a memorable moment. It's like, oh, remember when we saw this movie and those people behind us were just making out so loud, you couldn't even understand half of what they're saying. <laughs> like that creates one of those moments where you're like, yeah, that was something. And I think we've been missing that, you know, the fact that we can get together, we can, you know, I went to two showings of the Barbie movie, one where people didn't dress up and the other were where everyone was wearing pink. And the one where everyone was wearing pink was such a better experience. Like people were just into the movie. You know, there's just that sense of like positivity that you're not going to get if you're watching that movie by yourself or in a crowd that, you know, isn't feeling that same way. Yeah. And I, I think we're the same age. I think I heard you were 26. Is that right? I'll, I'll take it. 28, but I'll take 26. 28? 28. I'm, I'm a young 28. Oh, I must have listened to it. Did you turn 28 within a, <laughs> two months of 26? <laughs> yeah. no, I must have misheard you. No. Um, well, I'm, I'm 26. And the I don't know if you remember if, or if you had the similar culture. I'm sure you did in America when the parents normal activity movies were coming out and the first kind of opening weekend for those you'd walk in it was a cinema chocker block a hundred deep of tweens and teens maybe on a date maybe in a group and the atmosphere was wild mm -hmm. because at every jump scare everyone would be screaming and and then laughter would ensue because you've all shared this terrifying moment together and you can't help but laugh because maybe someone screamed weird in the back and it's exactly that. It's that that community, that sense of a, a joined uh, emotional experience. I think that's what I've been exploring a lot this season of the podcast is like how just humans connect and the importance of humans connecting and, you know, really understanding that this is who we are and this is who we are going to be. And we have to be accepting of that if we want to, you know, be together and love together. And I think that's so important to how we succeed as humans. Yeah. And just on that, the idea of her actual name being Barbie Oppenheimer. First of all, the fact that she's actually related to Oppenheimer is insane. That's so cool. Second of all, you could just call yourself Barbara because not many people know that Barbie is short for Barbara. It was named after the Ruth Handler's daughter. Her name was Barbara. So she named the doll after her daughter. And then Barbie was just a nickname. I think she's stirring the pot a bit. I think I th she's doing I think it on she's, purpose. I think she's owning it. She's like, yeah, I'm getting a little tension. She's like it. You know, her friends are texting yeah. her. She's like, yeah, fuck yeah, man. This is about, this summer is about me. Nothing's stopping this woman from just writing her name as like B Oppenheimer or like, <laughs> you can change your name in a hotel. That's absolutely fine. As long as the payment still goes through. Well, I also kind of want to talk about the movie and how it was marketed and the memes or the memes for the less educated. <laughs> uh, you know, Lucy, as someone, you, you know, you have an extensive background in how we go about finding marketable content. Do you believe companies have caught up with the organic creation of memes making, you know, something like Barbenheimer just a great marketing stunt? <laughs> like, I don't know if you've heard, but there's like this conspiracy that Universal, which produced Oppenheimer and Warner Brothers, which produced Barbie, uh, they have this like joint partnership in terms of physical distribution. So it's like there is a connection there. But it does seem like companies are getting more wise to how to properly market to consumers. 
but it, they're doing it in a way it, like it makes it seem more and more authentic. Yeah. So I think the big change that we saw with the way that businesses market, whether it's a product or a film or, a, or any any form of content, is that they started hiring younger generations. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just look at TikTok. There's TikTok trends all the time, whether it's Shrek on top of a building and it's just a little like 30 second TikTok from a roofing business or a tiling business in Texas. And it's like, my boss said that I need to do this, that or the other. And so here I am trying to get our account big. And that was a trend that that wasn't just one person. There'd be 50 other a thousand other TikToks just like it, where businesses and these Gen Z or millennial social media managers would jump onto it and kind of promote their whatever company they were working with in the strangest way that was is really unorthodox for the advertising space in general. When you think about it, to put a TikTok filter of Shrek above the, your building of your company and be like, guys, come, please just come and buy out our services. Like it's really earnestly asking people like that, but it worked because it brought traction. It brought impressions. It brought eyes. Um, I have not heard that Warner Brothers and or what were the two uh, production houses? Warner Brothers for the Barbie and then Universal for Oppenheimer yeah. having a connection. Obviously, I don't think they have like a, hey, I'll promote your shit. You promote my shit kind of thing. But yeah, I think what you were saying was like right on the, the nail on the head there that we're stepping into like meme marketing is becoming the standard for marketing because that's what the younger generation connects with. And I mean, when you get into marketing, you want to do what's ever connecting with the audience that's going to bring in the most amount of money. I think there's an interesting point to be made where you don't have to be a marketing executive to watch an ad and go, that didn't hit home for me. Like that did not work for me. For for you as kind of just like an everyday viewer, 6 p.m., you're just watching an ad while you eat dinner and you look up and you go, what on earth was that? We all have moments like that where we look at ads and we're like, what was that? Like that was awful. Maybe it was like a meme. Maybe it was trying to be a meme and you know what they were trying to do. They just didn't do it properly. That's, I think, where this whole like meme marketing can go wrong, but it's no different to advertising in history. There are all of these kind of contexts or categories for an ad to fall in, whether it's the car ad, all car ads are really similar. A luxury car brand ad is going to be different to a big truck car ad. You might have some monster truck music for the big car ad. You might have a rugged guy who's driving through some really big you landscapes. You got the deep voice. I'm um, yeah. selling Ford F-150. Ford oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Whereas the Mercedes ad might be like a really poised and professional looking woman or man sitting in the car and she's not doing much. She's just looking at the features. Whereas the Ford Bronco will focus on how rugged it is and how many rocks it can drive over. But there are, you know, that's just one category of ads and people get it wrong all the time, but hopefully they don't because they spend so much money on them. To that point, I think one of the things that has hit so well with me marketing is they're so easy to make. Like, as you were saying, you know, you can make a meme and you can turn it into 5,000 different kind of iterations of that meme. And it's very low access content. And that's what memes are about. As you get like into the deep history of memes, it's like, I'm going to make the simplest thing possible, the stupidest thing possible, but we're going to have that connection because we're both understanding like, this is so stupid. Like Shrek is life, Shrek is love. I don't know if you saw that video. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> But that's, but that's something, <laughs> I know, right? But that's something like, it's so stupid 
stupid, but it makes you want to watch and get interested in Shrek type content. And obviously that wasn't made by, you know, people associated with Shrek. But can you we imagine? have situations. I know, right? Can you imagine DreamWorks putting together the that board room after that one? <laughs> yeah. But it's one of those things where, you know, we're building stuff that's connecting us and we're like, oh, yeah, we can all watch this together. We can all say, like, how weird is this? But then at the same time, these companies are starting to see the benefit of, yeah, that was really weird. DreamWorks, yeah, DreamWorks is probably not going to say, we'll make something like that. But DreamWorks isn't going to say, let's take that down. They're going to say, Keep it up. It actually does seem like DreamWorks was not happy about the video, mostly about adding a children's character to a graphic adult situation. But listener, if you're looking for a truly wild and bizarre rabbit hole, look into the memification of Shrek and how deep internet culture reacted to the overuse of the Patriot Act of 2001 that came after 9-11 by funneling their reaction into poor tasting art that was to be ironically appreciated. It is a truly marvelous ride. Well, and that comes ties in perfectly what you were saying about whether or not there was an agreement, be it fiscal or not, about the cross-promotion <laughs> promotion of, of Oppenheimer and Barbie. I think that they probably just let it go. They were like, people are having so much fun with the concept of these two drastically different movies coming out on the same day that it's just giving more eyes and it's just promoting these movies without them having to spend a cent so, yeah, I don't think they necessarily would have had an agreement. They probably just had a treaty. <laughs> like, let's just not sue these people. Let's just let them make their T-shirts and whatnot because it's just helping us, which I'd like to see more of from brands. Yeah, and that's like another thing where, as, you know, the working demographic gets younger and younger and starts to more understand kind of this online culture, like even something like the Barbara Streisand effect, like if you want something off the internet, it's going to make it more popular. And I think companies are understanding that, like going back to the redesign of Sonic the Hedgehog for that animated movie, like, yeah, I'm pretty sure they played into that a bit. Obviously, I do think, you know, I've talked to some people in that space and some producers that make those decisions. And yeah, some of them are pretty brain dead and probably thought that was a good idea. So I think that was like a true, hey, we think this is a good idea. And then they, you know, kind of heard the backlash and were like, oh, maybe we should change. But now, you know, that's just another marketing tool that they're understanding that, yeah, we can play it. Like this is the modern day madman. And then, you know, when the next, you know, generation of workforce comes in, it's going to change again. Like marketing something that Everything needs to be sold, right? You know, that's just the unfortunate thing about our world is like you have to sell everything to get people to buy into it, whether it be, you know, through actual currency or whether it be through something like, you know, with podcasting, just listens and downloads. But you still need to get that to somebody and to get it to somebody. Sometimes, you know, organic growth or organic marketing isn't always the proper way to do it. And so you have to find ways to market your product and, we're just seeing new creative ways. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No. And I, on the idea of companies kind of embracing culture's depiction of them, uh, I'm sure that you guys have the current McDonald's campaign over there as seen in. And if you don't, I'm really surprised. In Australia, currently we have an advertising campaign from McDonald's who do their advertising flawlessly, but also how could they not at this point? But they have a campaign at the moment called As Seen In, and the ad on TV is literally just a compilation of every time McDonald's has been mentioned in a Seinfeld episode, mm. in a Marvel movie, in all of these incredible pieces of content that McDonald's really is kind of just slipped in because it is a cultural factor. It's not a plot point. It's just a meeting place kind of thing. 
And so they've embraced that. It, it, it's even on the bag now, like the paper McDonald's bag. It says "as seen in," and it lists you know specific Seinfeld episodes. I believe one is one is called "The Boyfriend." Thank you for a wonderful time, George. Glad you enjoyed it. I haven't had a Big Mac in a long time. Billions and billions. Like so, it just says "as seen in Seinfeld episode The Boyfriend." Oh my, season no, we whatever, do season not one. have this. We do not have this because I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. So I would I would know. This marketing campaign is being done to correspond with the season two premiere of Loki and features a limited time as seen in meal and is currently available in more than 100 countries. And by the way, that is not an ad. I am a Wendy's man. Wendy's all the way. It's a great ad because the first time I saw it, it stopped me. And that's obviously what you want as an advertising executive. And McDonald's don't really have to do much at the moment, they don't have to advertise to sell a product. They advertise to launch a product and to keep your mind thinking of the brand. And that's kind of the golden point for these big corporations. Once you get to that stage, it's just creativity. But the fact that they just embraced how McDonald's has been received all over the world in all of these different forms of content is really effective. I implore you to look up the ad because it's on YouTube and it's great. And I'm Utterly shocked that you got, they didn't run that internationally. <laughs> I'm sure maybe they're testing it overseas in Australia, and yeah. then it's coming to the US. They got to make well, sure they it's right first. Haven't asked me specifically about it yet, so I'll wait for the email and I'll tell them. <laughs> yep, air that stuff. Yep. <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. I mean, connecting this back to the story, and just here in the US, our Senate and our government is currently talking with Google about Google's monopoly, potential monopoly in the space, and it kind of reminded me of like what you were saying. Um, did you guys have like McDonald's monopoly? Do we have McDonald's monopoly? Uh, I'm just making sure. I'm Hungry Jacks sure. tried to do. Oh, it's called Burger King for you guys. We call it Hungry Jacks. They tried to do okay. Uno, like their version of it with Uno the card game, an absolute flop. But yeah, <laughs> I avidly play Monopoly every year. <laughs> Well, perfect. But the thing that they're discussing in our government right now is does Google have this monopoly? Are they paying, you know, Apple? Are they paying Samsung? Are they obviously their own phone? Are they paying them tons of money to get Google as the number one search thing on the app kind of driven into the hardware almost? But also at the same time, you know, same, you know, connecting it back to Barbie and Oppenheimer, Google is a good product. But they also understand that, hey, we've made a good product. Everybody likes our product. If we're going to become a monopoly because nobody else can compare to our product, what's what's the wrong that we're doing there? But also at the same time, you have to understand like the amount of money that's being put into this that you're not actually seeing. And I kind of saw the same thing here with Barbie. It's like, it's a good freaking movie. But then at the same time, they spent a lot of money on marketing for this movie. The reported marketing budget for Barbie is said to be around $150 million. And those two things can coexist. And whether it's good or bad, I don't know, it's, for the, it's for the general public to you know figure out. You're exactly right. I mean, the in-person activations, as they're referred to in the advertising space, it's basically when you go to the movies and there's a Barbie pop-up where you can put your face in a hole and take a photo. Like that is a really simple in-person activation. But I'm sure you guys had loads as well. We had so many Barbie kind of themed events. We had all of their connected partnerships with other brands. They would come out with different events to promote the film. And it's exactly what you're saying. There is so much money going on behind the scenes that you forget whether or not it is this genuine hype or if it is manufactured, which in oftentimes it is. 
And that's okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's absolutely, there's so much money behind the scenes. Well, and that's, I think, you know, something that recently happened with YouTube and people not properly like labeling, hey, is this an ad or is this something like you're actually in? And even like talking about Barbie earlier, you got to say kind of like, we're not sponsored by Barbie. And it's become something where it's like, What's real? What isn't? And I think that plays into kind of our second story here on how much of what we are seeing is just something that's created for us because we want to see that rather than us finding something we authentically like. And it it's become such a thing that, you know, I recently talked to Dr. Mark Williams about this, like just connection doesn't it's not we're not connecting the same way. But is our brain learning to connect in new ways or should we change how we are connecting? Because we might just be running down the wrong path. I worry for the newer generation in terms of how online they are and what the story we're about to get into is a great one in terms of, you know, this. So actually, yeah, let's just get into it. <laughs> well, we're going to we're going to introduce you first, Lucy, so people know who oh, the heck has been talking this whole time. Uh, I would like to welcome to the show Lucy Dwyer, host of Learning Things, an interest deep dive podcast that covers topics such as the marketing of Betty Crocker, our love affair with gambling, the Rise of Barbie, as we talked about earlier, or my personal favorite, The Untold Stories of the Wild Wild West. With her velvety smooth voice, mastery of voiceovers, and a solid background in journalism, you can find new episodes of Learning Tings every week wherever you listen to podcasts or on her YouTube for a meticulously crafted video version. Uh, Lucy, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thank you so much. I'm actually very happy to be here. We're all the way halfway through and it's been so much fun so far. <laughs> well, that's always good. Uh, but Lucy, one of the more prevalent questions I receive either someone asks about the show or a listener has a question is, how do I come up with the topics that are covered on the show? So I'm going to take the easy way out here and pass <laughs> that question along to yourself. How do you decide on a topic? Um, I've got to be interested in it. I have a big rule with content that if I don't want to watch or listen to whatever I've produced, it doesn't deserve to be on the internet. That's not to say that the same topic can't be covered really well by someone else. But if you're not inherently interested in what you're talking about, your audience is going to pick up on that. So, you know, it comes down to authenticity. Try and be as authentic as you can. And the best way that you can be authentic is to just listen to what you want to do. It, main character syndrome, you could call it that, but it's not really hurting anyone. So <laughs> it's not a bad essence of main character syndrome. But yeah, no, whether it's the Barbie story, which was a really interesting one to me to see how she was from the from the get-go, the formulation of that doll, all the way through to Betty Crocker. That was a great story. I really was interested when I first learned that. So naturally, I wanted to do my version of it. So I'm sure you can uh, relate to that in terms of picking guests. If you're not interested in them, if, if their blurb on whatever site you use to kind of find these people isn't jumping out at you or something in their life doesn't strike you as interesting, then they're not going to be on the podcast kind of thing because you're the one that has to talk to them for an hour. Yeah. And I think that kind of is to my answer as well. It's just the authenticity of like, this is something I like. This is something I want to talk about. So I, obviously now being able to do this six seasons and having, you know, a good audience size, you know, it's connecting. And so I think there's so much importance in even like other podcasts I listen to. It's like, okay, if they're passionate about the content that they're producing, and I understand, I mean, content production can sometimes get, you know, even if you love it, sometimes it's still a job at uh, the end of the day. At the best of times, you're going to have to break a rule of your own. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think as long as you have that, okay, I really wanted to talk about this. Like, I really wanted to talk about like me marketing and these influencer farms. And obviously, like, 
you know, with my show, and I know you've had a few guests, but like with my show, like every episode, I need a guest to kind of talk about that with and like finding someone that also connects with that. But also at the same time, I have to find a guest who I actually want to talk to, you know, because I don't want to, you know, spend your time, spend my time. Obviously, I do deep dives on each of my guests and kind of have way more information than I probably need to have. But that takes time. And I want to properly take that time. But at the same time, I don't want to be, you know, spending time on someone that I know we're not going to have a good conversation. I know they're not someone I'm interested in. I know their takes already. It's one of those things where you have to be really authentic in the type of thing that you release. And, you know, as we will go into the second story here in a bit, if you're just kind of content farming and just releasing stuff to release stuff, you're not going to find that audience you want. And I think that's a lot of people in the content space when they first start. You know, I know there is some talk around like Mr. Beast and Jack Septicai about like, you know, the type of content that's being released and not necessarily the type of content Mr. Beast is releasing, but the kind of content that people want to copy Mr. Beast are releasing and not understanding like he already built that connection with his audience. And that's what you have to do in this content space to really build that audience is Build small and find things that you love and you're going to find that audience that loves the same thing. But sometimes it may take a little longer. You might not be able to get up to, you know, 150 million views every time you release something. No, but that Mr. Beast concept is, um, wow, what a guy. How did he do that? Mm-hmm. And it's in the, the proof is in the pudding because his YouTube channel has videos from when he, you know, had 50 subscribers and he's just sitting there in his room and making stuff that he wants to make. And all of a sudden his uh, set up his production really is a extraordinarily large scale salaried employee base production. My partner also works in the sphere and I'm not sure if you're aware of the, I'd kind of be surprised if you weren't, Laserbeam, the YouTuber. It sounds familiar. Yeah, he's a really big one in Australia. Uh, he's actually, our, I think he's our biggest one is upwards of 20 million subscribers, but he focuses on kind of gaming content as well in a similar vein to Mr. Beast with challenges, you know, the sidemen and things like that. So my partner actually works for Laserbeam. He's kind of like his right hand man. And so we get like a little bit of an insider look into how much work goes into this stuff. And you'd be surprised, you know, for one video on La- on Mr. Beast's channel, there could be 30 hands on that, mm-hmm. like 30 different people, which is a testament to their team that they can remain authentic because you oftentimes people will compare a YouTuber to a TV show with a scripted teleprompter in front of them and high quality production and go, well, no, the YouTuber's real. You know, this is their channel. They're pretty close these days. You know, those big YouTube channels are on the same scale, if not bigger than a TV production studio. Um, So I think marketing companies could take a note from them in terms of how they are remaining authentic while keeping their production really high. I actually completely forgot what your question was. No, no, I think (laughs) you're right along. You know, it's my job as the host to get us back on track here. But I think a part (laughs) of it is I don't think the consumer always realizes the amount of time that goes into, say, like an hour long podcast or a two hour podcast, like the amount of time if you're properly doing the amount of work that you need to create something that's good. And sometimes you don't need to put in all that work. You know, sometimes it's just better to kind of, you know, go with the flow and figure it out along the way. But I think if you see like a video that's maybe 30 minutes to an hour, you don't understand that even talking to your work on uh, releasing episodes on YouTube, like the amount of time that goes into editing, finding clips, you know, recording things and recording, putting together a strip and all the time that goes into it. And so kind of getting back to that question I asked, you know, how do you decide on a topic? You actually have to like the topic, especially 
being smaller creators to put in all that time because you're not always seeing the financial benefit of the time you are putting in. Absolutely. And, you know, with what I do with Learning Tings, one side of it is really it can exist on its own as a podcast or as a YouTube series. And you can be watching or listening to one or the other without ever knowing the other one exists. So you can just listen to the audio version. But I also happen to spend upwards of 10 hours editing these 45-minute YouTube videos so that it can exist as something that people can watch and have something to look at while they're listening to me present it. And you're exactly right. By the end of that 10 hours editing, and that's just the main YouTube video, that's before you get into producing short versions of it for TikTok and cross-promotion for Facebook or Instagram Reels, things like that. By the time I finish editing all of that, I hate it. I hate the episode. I don't even, I'm not even interested in the topic anymore. So imagine if I wasn't interested to begin with, you know, there's no way I'm getting that episode finished. Oh my gosh. Being able to hire an editor and not having to listen to my voice over and over and over and over again has made my mental health work so much better for myself. Oh man. I'm, I, on like being a voice actor, I have to listen to my own voice. Um, so I'm really thankful that I don't hate it. I think we all get given, I don't know why everyone I talk to has the same sentiment as you they hate the sound of their voice maybe i have just gotten used to it we're just you're just hearing it all the time like that's the voice you hear the most you hear it all the time you literally literally over and over and over again do you have monitoring on while you record the podcast and nope i'm just hoping for what that means yeah okay so when you talk into a microphone what you are saying, you can choose whether or not it comes through your headphones. And growing growing up, <laughs> growing up in my career, you could say, <laughs> when I first started in radio, um, that's industry standard. You have to be listening to what you are saying mm-hmm. so that in case your S's were too you know, sharp, you learn how to speak better if you are constantly hearing what you are saying coming through. And I think that was an invaluable kind of experience for me because now I always have monitoring on. I always need to be able to hear. Yeah, always. Because if I am hearing exactly what I'm saying, I know if it sounded good or not. And there's only so many hours in the day. That's so interesting. Like one of the reasons I turned it off and like, this is like for the deep podcast people, they're like, oh yeah, this is fucking (laughs) awesome. Let's get nerdy. But (laughs) one of the reasons I turned it off because I would be so focused on what I'm saying and I'm not listening to the guests. And obviously in the space of what I do and having conversations, like listening is the biggest part of what I need to do here. And so I was so worried about obviously, you know, what are my levels? What am I saying? Like, how am I saying? Why am I saying it that way? And I would sometimes be like, oh, wait, what did you say again? And so obviously that's something where like, as you get bigger and bigger, you can bring in like a producer that's going to be able to monitor those levels and give you, you know, the signs that you need to do something or something else. But as smaller creators, once again, you're like kind of going back to what you say, like when you finish a product, sometimes you're just like, fuck this product, (laughs) but you have to like that product in the beginning to get to that level. definitely. And I think that that is where you, uh, uh, as an audience, uh, we are all audiences as much as we are a content creator at the end of the day. I'm sure you'd agree. I'm, I'm, consuming content just as much probably as I'm producing it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you know, as an audience, you know, when someone is not being authentic, you don't have to know them from a bar of soap to know that what they are doing is not what they're meant to be doing. You don't necessarily know what they're meant to be doing, but you can tell, we can tell. And so I always say to people, whenever people ask me, you know, like this question, how do you pick a topic or how do you present it? Always remember that your audience is smarter than you give them credit for. Your audience is you. 
at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Your audience is your neighbor. Your audience is your, you know, your boss. So, you know, not necessarily. <laughs> Uh, but I, th- I get in what the you're saying, though. Yeah. Of things, yeah, your audience is basically you and the people around you. So remember that. Remember that your audience is smarter than you're probably giving them credit for. And that way you can kind of build a relationship with your audience. Hopefully it's not going to get too parasocial, <laughs> which probably leads us into the next Perfect. Topic. Perfect lead away. We're going we're gonna to help some... Uh, some people here in Australia. But before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk have embarked upon a mission to give back to various parts of the community and those who helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of their episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we invite you listening to this episode to join in to help spread that message to your own personal audience. Lucy, your charity of choice for today's episode is MS Australia. Could you share with us the importance behind their work and how vital advocacy is towards treating, preventing, and curing MS in a place like Australia, obviously? The charity I linked was an Australian-focused one, but MS or multiple multiple sclerosis, it's a tricky one, um, is prevalent all around the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has been around for an extraordinarily long time and we still don't have a cure for it. It can be quite a debilitating disease and some people refer to it as the snowflake disease because it does present differently in every different person. Uh, So the fact that we, you know, there is treatment and it can help to kind of slow the progression, but think of it like chemo and cancer. It is not a end all in a lot of circumstances. It does not cure it. So yeah, the main reason for me, you know, selecting this as my charity is that I think we just globally, we need a cure. So whether or not you donate to the Australian side of it or your jurisdiction, um, I think it's important because it it's a really interesting disease in my opinion, because it can be quite silent. There are different types of it. You can be in remission for a really long time and then all of a sudden you're stuck in bed for two weeks and it's really demotivating for a lot of people. So yeah, I just think it's about time we get a cure. So let's let's do that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those, obviously not comparing diseases here, but it's one of those like cancer where it's like you probably know somebody who is who either has it or is close with someone that has it. And it's more prevalent than I think, you know, most people realize. But as you said, sometimes you don't always realize that you don't always see those symptoms, uh, which makes it a little harder for people to be like, why do I need to care about this? But it is one of those things, you know, I have, you know, a close friend who's impacted by it and how that has changed our relationship and, you know, our relationship with them as a couple. And it's, it's something that you really kind of need to be aware of. And I, you know, very much appreciate you bringing on the show today. Yeah. And, it, you know, again, it's there's no point in comparing diseases, but it is quite similar to a lot of others in the sense of it's no one's fault. You mm-hmm. can't prevent it. It's not like lung cancer. You know, you stop smoking, your chances of lung cancer go down dramatically. But MS, they actually have no idea what causes it. They've made uh, links to Epstein-Barr virus. I think it's called mono in America or glandular fever. Mm -hmm. It can increase your chances of getting it, but they don't know. So yeah, whether we need a cure or at least just some more knowledge on it um, to help people to either not get it or deal with it once they do. Well, awesome. I appreciate that. Are you ready to jump into this uh, final news story? Which, man, I'm excited for I'm this one. I'm excited for this Let's one. Let's do it. <laughs> and this is a actually viewer submitted story. So uh, we haven't had one of those in a while. So I'm excited, I was excited to get it going. Because for the viewers, we actually had a different story lined up instead mm-hmm. of this one. But when you sent this one through and said, you know, this is a, 
a listener article. I'm always going to lean towards a listener article regardless because, you know, you've got to give the people what they want. But you picked a bloody good story. It's a good one. It's a good one, Tomiko M. is the listener who sent this in. But this one, it's going to be so much better. Yeah. All right. So this is from Unheard Dark Web, Catherine D., August 22nd, 2023. Asia's influencer farms are dystopian, but America isn't much better. Over the weekend of this article's release, online technological personality Linus Ekenstam shared a video from an Indonesian influencer farm that showed would-be social media stars working in individual pods or rooms with ring lights and smartphones filming content for merchandise. And listeners, I highly recommend going to watch this video because it is something else. Dystopian. Dystopian to the max. Uh, And they're not small operations either. Think call centers, but instead of thousands of cold calls a day, hundreds to thousands of influencers create videos with the hopes that viewers will click add to cart. If you thought influencer culture was creepy, imagine it at an industrialized scale. This type of content generation isn't limited to Indonesia alone. Livestream e-commerce in China is a well-known tactic in which social media personalities push out specifically tailored content from influencer incubators over eight-hour shifts, leading to a multi-billion dollar industry. As far as we know, these same types of content farms don't exist, at least not in the same way. You know, we have something like influencer houses in the U.S. because for the most part, they're not as appealing. Yet the U.S. is no less susceptible to consumer trends and more seriously, propaganda. In the United States, online personalities and celebrities occupy a unique emotional space. They create an illusion of intimacy between the content creator and consumer, We'll take their makeup recommendations or watch them play a game, but we'll also listen to stories about their everyday lives and sometimes intimate details, often affording them more time than we would our actual friends. We crave a certain unvarnished authenticity, even when it's completely scripted. This isn't to say parasocial relationships between influencers and viewers don't exist in Indonesia and China. They certainly do, but the texture is different. They're more formalized and therefore more easily replicable. When Americans crave at least a veneer of authenticity, in Asia, there's a greater hunger for plain content, which is how 24-7 streams came into being. It may be tempting to sneer at the dystopian nature of Asia's influencer farms, but is the Fox intimacy of our social media stars any better? We now live in an increasingly dystopian world in which parasocial relationships with influencers are replacing actual human bonds. With these boundaries becoming even more blurred than before, it is difficult to know where our online life starts and our real life ends. This might just be the most disturbing part about all of this. So, Lucy, speaking to uh, parasocial relationships, what is real, what isn't, on your podcast, Learning Things, you covered an episode on the life of Judy Garland, and you had shared a quote from an old Hollywood gossip columnist, Hedda Hopper, and I think it's important to share the whole quote to feel the impact, but she said, one look into the eyes of the mother told you what was on their mind. If I can get this kid of mine on the screen, we might just hit a big. They took little creatures scarcely old enough to stand or speak and drilled them to shuffle through a dance step or mumble a song. They robbed them of every phase of childhood to keep waves in their hair, the pleats in their dresses, and pink polish on the nails. And I thought that was such an impactful quote because even, you know, how many years later, it's all just the same with a new label. And it seems like as people start to understand these relationships more, you know, these parasocial relationships... Some are trying to walk the fine line and trying to just, quote unquote, hit it big and play upon that Fox relationship that is being built without really the consideration for, you know, what is going to be the impact of building from inauthenticity. And as we hear more stories like Judy Garland, whether it be uh, the likes of someone like Miley Cyrus speaking up about her time in that Disney sphere, 
Like, right? Like, there has to be some recognition that this is the wrong way to go about doing this type of thing. Yeah, uh, I think on the kid side of it, and whether or not you have a child under the age of, you know, eight or nine, and you're the one in control of their career, I think that comes down to consent. If your child isn't old enough to decide for themselves with all of the ramifications that fame comes with, I don't like how it sits. I have Mm -hmm. a lot of respect for creators who don't show the faces of their children uh, on social media platforms. For example, I'm thinking H3H3, so Ethan Klein and Ella Klein's child. They share photos when they're a baby because they haven't developed facial features that make them recognizable yet. But as soon as that kid started going to primary school, every family photo that gets put on Instagram, there's an emoji over the kid's face. You know, I really respect that. I like that because the kid is developing these recognizable features that will change their life in ways that a lot of parents, I don't think, realize because they are hungry for that fame grab, as you're saying. I don't think it's fair on the kids. I really don't. Unless that child, there are too many parents that are thinking selfishly, I think, for what it could do for them, whether it's financially, whether it's, you know, they want to live vicariously through their child, thinking of Judy Garland's mother. Um, Shirley Temple's mother was extremely wanting to live vicariously through Shirley's life. And you are sacrificing your child's life, I think, in ways that you don't realize. You're taking things away from them. So, on that, I, I, yeah, I don't like the the kids side of it, but the fame grab is is an interesting one. And and this, if you haven't seen the video, I I I can't agree more. You, you've got to have a look at this dystopian video. But think like a a office space, like an office building, and a big skyscraper, and they've just got one floor that has just been converted, where every single individual office space is doing something different. The video pans from girls that are trying on makeup. The next one, there's a girl with a clothes rack behind her testing this out. And it's important to note that Asia as a whole are very good at mass commodifying things. So think India with IT tech support. They are so good at that. China with goods. Everything is made in China. Korea with pop music. K-pop is, you know, they... Asia is very good at mass commodifying things. So this is nothing new, as you said. It's just a new turn in, the, in what we're used to, I think. But I, yeah, I don't, when I see this stuff on TikTok, I don't know what everyone else's algorithm is like, but I get a lot of this stuff. Like you just scroll through and it pops up alive. you know, every five regular TikToks, you'll get a live TikTok that okay. you can decide whether or not you want to watch before you click on it. I get a lot of these ones and it's so inauthentic that I cannot imagine watching it personally. But I find it bizarre to think that maybe over there, that's fine for them. You know, an influencer that is kind of, and and no disrespect for these people, they are just trying to make money and this is just their job. But I, when I look at their streams, they're just dead in the face. I've had people, I've had conversations with people where it's like, are all of these people getting paid or is there some human trafficking going on here? Because some of them do not look happy to be there. And so I can't imagine people in Asia relating to this in the same way that we would relate to our favorite YouTube creators. 
I don't know. What do you think about it? I think there is this disconnect between understanding Western culture and Eastern culture. And obviously, you know, yes, I want to talk a little bit because I know you spent some time working in Japan and kind of working oh on, God, you know, you appealing to the you're Western me of audience. Sean Evans. I feel like I should be eating hot wings. <laughs> You've done your research. That's, that's what they say, right? Um, but yeah, you spent some time, you know, trying to appeal to Western audiences while also maintaining, you know, the local Japanese followers. But they're that's something that even I have struggled with connecting with audience because my whole audience is mainly Western, the Western sphere, quote unquote, the Western yeah. sphere of what Likewise. we consider kind of everything that Britain was like, hey, we're going to conquer most of the world. And that's what, <laughs> you know, you consider the Western sphere now, right? And so there's very different ideas of what is acceptable and what people like that you don't always realize because you're so stuck into the echo chamber of, oh, yeah, this makes sense from a Western perspective that... I want authenticity from my content creators. If I'm going to buy something, I'm going to buy something because somebody is selling it to me in a way that I feel connected to that person. Yep. Whereas in Eastern cultures, you don't always see that. It's not as important to have that connection. Even you know, I haven't been over to any Eastern uh, countries, but I know just from friends who have traveled over there, even walking down the streets, it's a very different experience where a lot of people are just, I just need to go and get to where I need to get. I don't want to have the conversations here in the US. Like people just stop you on the street and be like, hey, how's your day going today? How's your day going today? Yeah. And not, I'm not trying to say like, one's right and one's wrong. But just people a just live show. a very different life. It's yeah, people Absolutely. are just living a very different life. And like, what do you what what did you pick up during your time working in Japan in that market? They're very formal, very polite. Mm-hmm. I think it's a culture shock for uh, Australians do spend a lot of time in Japan and Indonesia because we are so close. For the people who may not have thought about it before, one flight across Australia can take 8 hours and that's by air. So for us to then try to leave the country is very time consuming (laughs) and also really expensive. So a lot of the time that Australia spends overseas, it's usually in places like Bali because it's really cheap for us to go there. Mm -hmm. Japan is very polite, very businesslike, exactly what you're saying. A lot of them are in a hurry, particularly in the cities, as when you go further remote, there's a lot more uh, camaraderie and and culture. But it is important to remember that they have a richer culture than we do in terms of spending time with family and communication. So while they may not be stopping at 10 o'clock on the street and having a conversation with each other, they really value their family time at home, all of these Asian uh, cultures. So it is kind of swings and roundabouts. It's like a balancing thing. While we are going to place more emphasis in social contact in one area, they are going to do it in, you know, a different way. Yeah, that's a very good point. They're really, really culturally uh, family oriented and they look after their elders. And that is something that we have lost in the Western world. I've got to give a recommendation to a fantastic Netflix show I watched recently to you and your listeners. It was called, I'm ready for the machete noise, um, something like How to Live to 100. I'll take it from here, Lucy. The Netflix show is titled Live to 100, Secrets of the Blue Zones. And it was going over five different cultures around the world and how they, their lifestyles, their food, their ways of thinking help these people to build these communities with a high concentration of what is known as a centenarian, people over 100. And one thing that remained prevalent as one of these golden reasons for how they are living so old is their connection to each other, to community, to the land around them. And 
and to, and to the elders, <laughs> we are losing the plot in the Western world with that. <laughs> we just ship our parents off to old homes and pay them a visit once a week and, you know. So, yeah, the cultural shift is there. Yeah, the cultural shift is is very apparent in something like this. And we can see this and be like, wow, this is really strange. And at the same time, it can be strange as well. I mean, this is something that you even see this kind of blurring into uh, a culture here or a content created creation culture here in the U.S. where, you know, you can see people just getting together and creating things like I talked about influencer houses, like you're pretty much doing the same thing, but you're doing it for different audiences that are going to want different things and want different things from their content creators. And again, in a similar way to in America, when we privatize something, we pour millions of dollars into it. We don't necessarily get the same turnaround as Asia. They have, in some cases, a lot lower minimum uh, wage. So like the comparison you're making between maybe these influencer offices in Indonesia where these people are not getting paid nearly as much as, say, these phase houses, which cost $10 million to buy and then absurd amounts of money to maintain, there's only six people in there. So the turnarounds for authenticity, it's, a, it's an interesting point to make. It's like you're spending a lot of money, but what's the turnaround? What is that turnover difference? You know, that's one of the things. Obviously, you know, having a background in journalism, you understand like following the money. It's like where is the money being made and who's spending this money is so important. And the same thing with, you know, these influencer farms is like somebody's making a lot of money. And I do, you know, kind of looking more them. into this. Yeah, it's yeah. not these individuals, but they see it as just another job. They don't always look at it as I'm creating content for TikTok because I want to be a TikTok star. And that's where we also have to be more aware in Western culture is for sometimes this is just a job for them. Like they might not want to be like uber famous and, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe they have that like, oh, maybe I can make it and kind of make it out of here. But that's like everyone's story. It's like, yeah, I want to do, you know, something and I want to make it out of here and I want to do what I love and figure it out along the way. But I think we look at something like this and we say, oh, it's and I know obviously it's a lot closer for you in Australia, but we look at it as something on the other side of the world. And it's so strange to us but maybe it's more normal there. Yeah, I'm trying to think about whether we do maybe find it closer to than to you guys. I don't think we do. In Australia, at least, you guys set the tone. America, you set the tone for culture for the most Number part. Number one, baby, the yeah. most American thing I can say right there. <laughs> the most American conquering. thing I can say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Um, but, you know, we get some of our culture from Britain, but for the most part, we are following suit for whatever you guys do. I mean... You're making all the movies. You're making all the. You're the ones with the big budgets in Hollywood, and and that is what essentially sets the tone for us. So, no, I don't think we are necessarily closer. Actually, now that I think about it, I think we're closer geographically, and we do spend time there. But yeah, maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm kind of downplaying that a bit because I I probably do have more knowledge of of Asian cultures. And, and the people around me would just based on the fact that our family holidays. And you spent time out there and it's easier to get that way exactly. versus, you know, it's a 17 hour flight from Australia to, you know, where I'm in uh, in the U.S. here. I do want to kind of touch on, you know, kind of that Judy Garland quote a little bit about and obviously talking about the impact of parasocial relationships. And like even, you know, I just saw that um, Hugh Jackman and... Oh, oh, they just gosh, split. I'm, At the day of recording, Hugh Jackman and his wife has just just split up. I get, oh, my gosh. I know she's like a great actress in Australia. Now I'm going to do 
You're no, not a crush you know on what? myself. No, you're not. You're not in the wrong. Deborah Lee Furness is her name. Um, I don't. I didn't know who she was. So don't feel bad about that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it makes me feel better. You're Australian. Yeah. You should know. Um, but anyways, like reading the comments and kind of getting to this conversation on parasocial relationships, reading the comments around some of these, and even my partner had shared with uh, me this mommy TikToker who used to post, you know, her kids and faces of her kids and. Everyone in the comment section was like, I'm her auntie, I'm her auntie, I'm her auntie. And then the mom decided to blur the photos as, uh, you know, as they became more recognizable. And everyone was so pissed off. It's like, you, you can't take these kids away from us. We're their aunties. And I think we're seeing the same thing, you know, with Hugh Jackman here and as their relationship is ending, like everybody is like, oh, my gosh, man, this is a couple that I loved. And, you know, I'm so invested in their relationship. But why? Like, you don't know. You know, you don't know the ins and outs of their every day. You're just seeing bits and pieces going back to the, you know, the marketing for Barbie. You're like, we're only seeing the bits and pieces that they want us to see. And that creates this really, really, really unhealthy relationship with influencers, with celebrities, with athletes, because we're so invested in their lives. And I think social media has allowed us to be so invested in their lives. But we're still only connecting with a few hours maybe of their day when really we're all living the same 24 hours and we're having these disconnections between, oh, yeah, I think this person is like this way. And I'm going to put that in my mind that they're like this way. You know, Post Malone is this amazing person, but I'm creating this idea of Post Malone that's not actually Post Malone. You and I definitely have a parasocial relationship with Post Malone. (laughs) (laughs) But... You know, at the same time, you know, I think we have good intentions, but yes. there are people who don't have those same good intentions. And that's the unhealthy aspect of creating content is you sometimes have to realize that you are putting something out to the world and you, you know, going back to like, how do you choose content? You're putting something out to the world that you see a certain way. But once you put it out into the world, anybody can see it any way they want. And sometimes people don't always have, you know, the best intentions on how they want to interact with that media. No, and you're exactly right when it's not always malicious. A parasocial relationship is defined as a one-way relationship, put simply. And we see it a lot these days in online culture because of the way we can connect to someone, whether we relate to a YouTuber, watch a Twitch streamer, spend our free time when we're feeling a little bit vulnerable and tired from work, watching someone else's content who we like. Um, that's not a bad thing. In fact, it actually fuels their careers. Mm-hmm. If parasocial relationships didn't exist, these YouTubers wouldn't be making the money that they are making. But it can turn weird. It can get really unhealthy. Uh, I'm not sure how much you and your listeners are familiar with the world of Twitch in the gaming streaming platform. If you're not, it's just basically a live streaming platform that most people play games on. And for about five hours a night for about three years, pretty much full time, I was a Twitch streamer playing games like, you know, Fortnite and Call of Duty and things like that, whatever tickled my fancy. And The important thing to remember here is I was not a big one. I had, um, you know, an average viewer is what it's referred to in terms of, you know, you count YouTube success by views, you count Twitch success by how many people you have watching you at any given time. I was averaging like 30 to 50 people, not many, and definitely not many in comparison to people like Ninja or people like uh, Dr. Disrespect, who average anywhere between 20 and 80,000 people, XQC, for example. They've got a city watching them. That's insane. But I wasn't one of them. And so, you know, when I started receiving three-page handwritten letters from older men professing their love to me, 
that definitely kind of made me take a step back and go like, oh dear, but I don't know this person from a bar of soap. I know their first name and it's not their fault. I definitely, I think action is your fault. A parasocial relationship, it's, you cannot blame that on the viewer. I think you can only expect them to be distant to a certain extent because at the best of times, I think we all use content to help us get through a hard time. And sometimes that content does come in the form of a person and that's okay. But you have to remember that that you don't know them. When someone asked me, because I was a big One Direction girl, like when One Direction came out, <laughs> I was like 12 or 13. Oh man, I loved them. And I had a friend ask me recently, like, what was it? Like, why? Why do you think that happened? And I said, okay, well, first of all, think about Beatlemania. It's the same thing. But in terms of what that is, think about when you're reading a book, you know, a novel, a fantasy novel even, especially actually. And you're connecting with these characters and you're, they're telling you the story and then maybe you finish the book and you start thinking about it more and what else are they up to and what would that character do? You know, you know this character back to front because you've read 600 pages of a first person narrative of what they think and how they go about their day. That's the same thing. You know, you watch these Twitch streamers and they're just telling you about their day and you get an instant gratification when you write mm -hmm. a message in chat and they read it with a two second delay. That definitely helps. <laughs> but to wrap that up, I don't think parasocial relationships are bad. I think what results from them is bad. Yeah. I mean, obviously we all have these relationships and we see things in different ways and how we consume at the end of the day, right? Like, obviously, there's a person behind making content, but at the end of the day, it is content for you to consume. And you get to decide how you consume it. You get to decide how that content makes you feel. But when it crosses the line is when you're sending those letters. You know, I received death threats. You know, it, it's those oh. things that... God, what'd you do? <laughs> I said animals should be protected. And somebody said... Oh, that's awful You're right, you. but fuck you at wow. the same time, right? I cannot believe you would even <laughs> utter that. Uh, uh, but I think it is important to hear those stories from the side of content creators, but also at the same time, how you talk about those stories matter. I don't know if you've, like Miranda Cosgrove, who was on iCarly and the iCarly reboot now, uh, but she talked about somebody, uh, a stalker who literally burned himself alive in her backyard. And she was like, just very nonchalant about it. I think she later talked about it. She's like, I just don't want people to like spend time on it. I just want to move it past. I don't want people to be like, Oh, yeah, this is how I get mentioned on a podcast by Miranda Cosgrove is lighting myself on fire. There is a reason that police departments hide details about serial killers to prevent mm -hmm. copycat crimes. And it's one of those things where it's like you have to be very aware of how you talk about the relationships as the content creator. You can't just say, well, oh, this person specifically is sending me these messages because that person's going to be like, I'm getting to her. You sometimes have to be aware of that. And that's why I wanted to ask you. It's like, hey, are you comfortable talking about this? And, you know, obviously, I think it does come from, you know, I remember I was listening to this. I can't remember what the podcast is. It was Emma Chamberlain's podcast, Anything Goes, on parasocial relationships and also a combination of a few studies I had read. But Emma Chamberlain's coverage is a good place to start. But I was listening to this conversation and they were talking about why we have these parasocial relationships and how our development, and I'm glad you kind of talked about One Direction, like as we're growing up and we're developing and we're learning who we are, we're having these very deep connections with people. Like for me, it's like Paramore and Haley Williams. I'm like, oh yeah, uh, she's a sick I dyed ass my woman, hair light man. red when I was nine. <laughs> 
I think, I don't remember how old I was, like a temporary mm-hmm. hair dye because I thought she was the shit. She is. <laughs> she, oh, she is. Oh, my goodness. But, like, she was such an important figure in my life. Her music, the kind of same music, that uh, punky gothic music that they released, you know, the rock music. And it was so important during my development that, like, as I grew up, I was like, oh, I'm growing up with Paramore. You're growing up with One Direction. And so they have a deeper connection with you. And they were kind of talking about how a lot of people who have these very unhealthy relationships later in life are still going through those or have struggled going through those development stages and are still stuck in that development stage. And so they still see it as... Oh yeah, why why am I like now you're like why am I why was I obsessed with One Direction? Like, yeah, there weren't they're really nothing. They had great hair and everything and they sung, you know, some good <laughs> songs, but you know, as you grow and as you develop and become more mature, you understand that those relationships and some of the like, you know, buying their hair from eBay is like Ew. it's a little weird and you're like understanding that because you're more mature, but for individuals who may not be able to get to that development level, I'm not trying to like be like it's okay to be a stalker because you haven't developed into no. you know mature sense yet. But a lot of that podcast talked about why that was happening and why you know some of these people do have these mental health issues because they're just not developed enough to understand the maturity of what they are doing. Oh, definitely. I remember with Twitch, um, you get a higher concentration of parasocial relationships on Twitch purely because it's a live setting. And when you type something into chat, the person you are watching will answer it within two seconds and or thereabout. But also for a smaller streamer such as myself, uh, it was, you know, it's guaranteed that I'm going to see their message because it's one of 15 that's there per minute. So I'm going to see it. And that's the whole point of me being there. So when you write something into a chat and you're watching a streamer and you like them, like they're fun, they're, they're, they're hitting the right notes for you as in terms of what you want from a creator – and like you type a joke into chat and you make them laugh. It's like, oh my God, we could be friends. Like they just laughed at me. This is a natural human conversation that we're having. First of all, it's it's obviously not. Yes, you are looking at someone. Yes, you can hear them. Yes, they are reacting to you. But they can't see you. The streamer can't see you. They're just in entertaining their their audience based on this text that they've just received. But having said that in terms of the, you know, um, mental health, you can always tell as a streamer when someone would come into your chat and you could tell if there was uh, a screw loose, so to say. No, I don't, I'm not, I don't think anyone should diagnose anyone. Um, but you know what I mean when you can kind of work out like what might be going on for that person and you tailor what you say to them accordingly. So I would be more freely myself with some viewers when I knew that they they were pretty, at least normal for whatever the fuck that word means. <laughs> but there were some times where I'd get a viewer and I'd be like, oh, okay, I'm going to be a little more careful with this person because I can sense that they're going to get attached for something maybe that I don't even know how to finish the sentence, but you know what I mean. <laughs> As I kind of talked about that last episode with Dr. Mark Williams, it's you can be anyone you want online. You can't be yeah. anyone you want in person. So it's a lot easier to have authentic online connection, well, at least one-sided authentic connection when you can pretend to be whoever, you know, you think that person's going to connect with. And I think a lot of individuals who don't have that type of authentic connection in person are going to go online and try to build that connection because that's the ethos of being a human is connecting. Going back to this first story is like, we want to connect, we want to go to the movies together. But if we can't have that, our 
brains just want to create it. And sometimes we create it in very unhealthy ways. Oh, great point. And there is also a point to be made that the people that are spending, you know, eight hours a night watching a Twitch stream are not going to be the quote unquote average American. Mm-hmm. The average American is or working. Or average person around the world. Average person <laughs> is working, you know, sometimes 10 hour days, 50 hour weeks. Yep. By the time they get home and they've got a family or they're cooking dinner or maybe they're a single parent, they've got so much stuff to do that the last thing that a lot of these people do is sit down for six hours and watch a streamer. So there is a point to be made that the people that do have the time to do that, maybe they've got a disability and that's why they're home for a lot of the days. Maybe they, as you exactly what you're saying, why I brought this up, maybe they just don't have those natural in-person social skills that a lot of people can struggle to develop and so that they feel more comfortable behind a keyboard as opposed to an in-person. So, yeah, there's a point to be made that the people and your audience on Twitch is not the average person for the most part and there's always an essence of remember that, you know, remember that the people that – are in your stream and not the same people you might bump into at the pub. So you've got to remember that in mm-hmm. terms of how you speak to them. And that's what I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was just kind of reading about that today. It's like online obviously is not real life. You know, no. if you like use Reddit, the the I know you did um, an episode on Am I the Asshole? And I think a lot of people look at that and we're like, oh, yeah, that's the consensus of like who I should be. You know, for people who don't know on Reddit, they have a subreddit, Am I the Asshole? And people like say, hey, this is a situation that happened in my life. Was I the asshole or pretty much am I the bad guy or am I the good person? And a lot of those takes are, you know, grounded in reality. But at the same time, you know, if you ask about like, say, a relationship, People don't have the context for that relationship, so they're just going to say, oh, break up with that person. Or the context is very heavily biased by the original poster. Exactly. In the same way that you talk to a friend, you might omit details. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right? But yeah, I think people are so – some people are so terminally online that they just assume that this is what the world is. You know, especially like when you get into 4chan and 8chan and 16chan and all those type of – you know, very chance. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like those are the type of individuals who they see what's online and they see it as this is what real life is when really it's sometimes you have to get off, you know, the computer, you have to go outside, get that fresh air, interact with people. But at the same time, individuals don't always have the ability to do so. And so it's just this weird situation where it's like, how do you come to a conclusion that works? When everybody's so different. And I think that's the hardest thing when it comes to content creation is your audience is going to be has the potential to literally be anyone. Mm -hmm. And as a content creator, you have to be aware of that as you're releasing content, as you're putting yourself out there. I mean, I'm a freaking cartoon. Like people don't know what I look like. (laughs) They see a cartoon. That cartoon could be a completely different version of myself. Like obviously now, Lucy, you know what I look like and it's pretty similar. No, you have very lovely blue eyes. (laughs) Give a secret to the listeners. (laughs) (laughs) But I did that because of that past experience with those death threats. I'm like, Oh yeah. I'm putting myself out, you know, publicly to the world. I'm sharing my opinions. You know, sometimes we do have very controversial stories that people can get very heated about. But at the same time, you know, my family's not wanting to be public. My friends aren't wanting to be public. My partner doesn't want to be public. And so I have to understand the impact of the content I put out, not just to my audience, but how it impacts my family, my friends, my close people, my coworkers. And that's something that I don't think content creators are always as aware of as they should be. No. And you're preaching to the choir. I had a more malicious kind of stalker early on. Um, It was a kid. It was a kid in Australia with too much time on his hands. 
He walked out exactly where I lived uh, by a, I remember he was, I remember getting, you know, messages sent from a a very loyal viewer who I still speak to, to this day, who said, Hey, this guy messaged me about, he knows where you live. And I was like, Oh God, like, I'm not going to confirm or deny, but what's he saying? And he said, you know, he's worked out where you live based on this photo on your Instagram, because there's a window next to me, not behind me, just next to me running along, you know, kind of vertically into the background of the photo. He worked out where I lived based on that, based on my stepbrother's Instagram, uh, once came into my, my Twitch channel with the name of one of my stepbrother's friends. And I was like, too dumbfounded to even think that that it wasn't them. I was like, this is so niche. This is such a niche part of my life for you to pretend to be. And he, you know, he gypped me. I, I got got basically. And I thought that I was talking to my stepbrother's friend until eventually he revealed himself. And and then one time I got, I had moved into state. I moved from, you know, New South Wales to Victoria. I wasn't living at home. And pizza was delivered. And I get a call from my stepdad saying, hey, Luce, you silly goose, you've ordered pizza back home. Like, and I said, I didn't order that pizza. And it was paid for. And it was, you know, at my doorstep and, and I freaked out. I'm, I'm thinking like, who delivered it? I'm asking my stepbrother, uh, my stepfather, I'm saying, who delivered it? You know, did they say anything? Was it actually someone in a Domino's uniform? Because I'm thinking, was it this bloody kid? Or like, did you, I was even scared that my stepdad had said like, oh no, she doesn't live here anymore. She lives in Victoria. And, you know, kind of fueling this. And it wasn't fair to my family. So I had to sit my parents down and be like, you're going to think that my ego is inflated beyond all means right now. (laughs) But seriously, there are people that know where I live for whatever reason, want to, you know, stir stuff up in my life and show that power that they know where I live, that malicious power to kind of make me uncomfortable. Don't post me on your Instagrams. Don't um, no, post me on your Instagrams, but you know, when we're at the family farm, for example, which my parents moved to a beautiful farm and don't post me in that. I don't want to be connected in case it implicates them. It's not fair. Exactly what you're saying. Well, that's even something like, you know, I worked with a private eye to kind of like just get rid of as <gasps> yes! much as, uh, as much as like me on the internet. Like I got a new phone number because like you could type in my phone number and there's my address right there. And that's something, you know, especially in this what? space. Pause. Oh my gosh. What do you Here mean? in the U.S., there's plenty of sites, probably in Australia, too. I don't want to put any ideas into any oh, nefarious listeners' minds. I'm going to be the stalker. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, that's something, like, I was like, okay, if I'm going to get serious about this and, you know, as the audience continues to grow and as this becomes more of a viable career option, mm. I do have to be more aware of Obviously, going back to, you know, this story, it's like I want to be authentic in the content and in the takes that I put out to the world, because if I believe something's, you know, true and I've done the research to back that up and I feel comfortable about it, I've talked to people in the space and it's an opinion that I'm like, this is what I think. The sky is blue. And somebody's like, I don't like that. Someone's colorblind. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to change around that opinion just because I'm going to have people that are going to say... I don't like that. And because of that, I don't like you. And at the same time, you know, you, I have to be very aware of how that impacts, like I was saying, the rest of my family, kind of turning this around, you know, back to the Barbie movie, because any good host kind of perfectly wraps everything up. But I do, think there do. Is, <laughs> <laughs> I do think there is a more importance 
to like you as a woman to be more aware online than me. Like I don't consider like, oh, somebody sent me a pizza to my house. Like I am going to be like, oh, that's strange. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to be as concerned as somebody who might not feel as comfortable with that happening. It, it comes it comes down to, you know, men don't get attacked in dark car parks nearly as much as women. It's a simple fact. You know, it's something that like I think the Barbie movie did really well was share that perspective that a lot yeah. of men don't always have. And that's why I feel like it was such, you know, an important movie to put out there into the world. And I think why it connected with so many people, because it showed something that half the world doesn't experience. Yeah. And it can hopefully help situations where it's like, should I send a pizza to that streamer's home address that I had to take, <laughs> you know, a week to find? Maybe I shouldn't because that would be weird. And having those mature conversations with ourselves because we're seeing, you know, we're having empathy with each other. <laughs> That's like the premise of kind of what I was trying to get to. Movies like that that really connect with people can really show that, hey, there's a bigger idea of empathy and how we connect with one another. And once again, getting away from that main character syndrome, like we're not the only person here in the world. Like other people have very complex lives and you have to understand that just because we're only seeing bits and pieces of it, doesn't mean or means that we might be missing context when we want to say, oh, they broke up. No, they were perfect together. We don't know what is going on behind the scenes there. We don't know. Yeah. Just on the idea of content presenting tricky topics in a, in a good way. I'm currently watching The Sopranos for the first time with my boyfriend. Oh my, what a beautiful show. Incredible. Beautiful show. And <laughs> something that I've noticed, um, I think we're a couple of seasons in now, there's been some quite graphic sexual assault scenes and uh, just the way that they handle how the women in the roles are presented, I think is really bloody good. I don't know if you watched House of Dragon. Yep. I was a big Game of Thrones fan. And when you're a big Game of Thrones fan, you know what that comes with. Like you got to deal with some really like hard scenes to watch sometimes. I don't think House of Dragons did their scenes very well at all. I think it was really gross. And just mm -hmm. in the first episode... The childbirth scene and then later on in the show with some more graphic scenes, even the childbirth scene was just unbelievably, I couldn't, I was so uncomfortable and not in a way that I think it wanted you to be. It was like, for example, in The Sopranos, they showcase an assault scene where it is so graphic emotionally that it makes you sit there and go like, holy shit, you really feel the ramifications for the character. They didn't graphically show this act they graphically showed the emotions of the character of the woman that was going through it. House of Dragon was so uncomfortable to watch because I'm just looking at all this blood. I'm just looking at this whole scene. I'm thinking, what on? It just felt like it was written by a man. There are physical ramifications always in a situation like that for a woman, but emotionally it is always going to trump those physical issues. And whenever a scene shows the graphic violence of it, I think it misses the whole importance of what that act actually does to a woman. And Sopranos are doing it really well. I was really impressed. I mean, once again, like we need more examples of showing like this is the the realism of what happens, the yes. authenticity. You know, if we continue to create things that aren't real, but they make us feel better, like, sure, that's good every once in a while to consume that content. But at the end of the day, you have to understand that we have to have that realism to understand the impact of our actions and how it impacts other people and how, I mean, romantic movies have been notorious for pushing out content that you're like, 
This is not how an actual real relationship goes, but it's so infused into our culture that now people are doing these really weird things like standing outside a window with the boombox. Like, yeah, that looks good in a movie, but sometimes it's not the ro- most romantic thing if that person doesn't want you to be out there. If that person doesn't know you, uh, start there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Start by an introduction, maybe. Good point. Well, Lucy, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most bizarre news stories the world has to offer in an engaging, productive, and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you'd like to consume more of Lucy's voice mastery, you can do so by heading to her YouTube, youtube.com slash Lucy, spelled L-U-C-E-Y. Once again, youtube.com slash Lucy. Or if you're interested in her talents as a voiceover artist, you can connect through her website, www.lucy, once again, spelled L-U-C-E-Y dot com dot A-U, because she is Australian. And as always, that link will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. Dot com. So kind of a, a final question here, getting into the voice acting. Yeah. How, how do you view your work in that space? You know, we recently had an episode with Carolyn where we discussed Jenny Slate stepping down from a character of Missy on the show, uh, the Netflix show Big Mouth, a, a very long time ago. But she said it was necessary for, a, you know, a black actor to voice a black character. Yes. How do you view your work in that space and the impact your voice has on shaping the stories and messages people connect with? In society, you know, for example, someone may be more inclined to do something or buy something because they connect with your voice rather than, say, my voice. Well, uh, one of the descriptions on my website on the front page is just, you know, your product is important or what you have to say is important. So get a professional to do it. You can always tell when someone is a voice artist or when they're just reading a script, because the difference is a voice artist can take a script and make it sound conversational or make it sound, you know, trustworthy and authentic. And that is at the heart of marketing. (laughs) They need people to seem authentic, (laughs) even down to influencers, what we're talking about. It it sells. Sex sells once upon a time. It's now just authenticity and a relationship with someone. So uh, yeah, it's, it's fun. I like it. But on the race thing, I've had a couple of moments myself where I'm like, why are you asking me? For people, obviously, this is an audio episode. I am a white Australian. I have Irish descent, so I've got ginger hair, and oh, wait for that motorcycle. You just rode off on a motorcycle. You're just like, I'm out of here. Yeah, no, I'm off, guys. <laughs> I came at the and yeah. it's gone. Cool. Um, I've had a I've had a time where I've been asked to do a slight Asian accent, or they've asked for an Asian Australian with an Asian accent, and I'm thinking that's just going to be racist. Like, just get someone who is Asian to do it. And then you've got a perfect little arrangement there. I've got, this is completely off topic, but I've got a friend who is a model. Um, She is of South African and Jewish descent, but because she's got tanned skin, she once got paid more for a job because she looked Aboriginal, which is our, you know, native Indigenous people of Australia. And it's like, what on earth? You know, you can just get an Aboriginal for that. Like, why is my friend getting paid more? So yeah, I think it's an interesting idea that um, woman stepping down from that role. And obviously Hank Azaria from The Simpsons, he is the voice of about, you know, 80% of that cast, whether they are white, black or any other color. He is an absolute powerhouse. Have you seen videos of Hank Azaria and oh my gosh, the voices like when he can people do? can switch voices like that is so unbelievably well, impressive. The whole 
Simpsons cast is unbelievable. There's, I saw a video going around recently of a kind of an amalgamation of all these different talk shows that the different um, voice artists had been on, showcasing all the different voices they do for The Simpsons. The only person that only voices one person is Lisa. Yardley Smith, she only voices Lisa. Everyone else, there's like five people, they voice the entire show. It is unbelievable. So while I do think there is 100%, 200% merit in getting someone of the race to voice that character, sometimes I actually think if it's a character, you pick the best voice. And sometimes it can come down to whether or not it's the right voice for the character. Sometimes that's part of the character that they don't sound like what they're meant to look like, you know? So while there is definitely merit, and I'm never going to take that away and say that white people should voice everything. Sometimes I think it should just go to the best voice for the character. Yeah. And I think that's so important. I mean, Io Ebedry, who took over for Jenny Slate, obviously nailed that character. She nails the character in The Bear on uh, Hulu's FX. But I think what you said about authenticity cells is so important. And when you sometimes have somebody with that lived experience that can bring that to the character or bring that even in the professional setting, you can bring that, oh, oh I actually use this product. So I actually feel like you oh, know, I've definitely. been able to sell it and be more authentic definitely. when I sell it because I enjoy that product. You know, you see some of these, you know, podcasters or YouTubers doing their ad reads and you're like, you've never even seen this product in your life. You know, you've never, oh, you don't even like this product. Thank you God. just, if shadow, sh what's that one? Shadow Raids Legends or shadow something. Raid when that one comes Le up, oh I'm my like, God. the game is Raid Shadow Legends. Not an ad, but $100 is $100 Raid Shadow Legends. Just saying. I you got don't play that one. You don't them. play that one. I don't know where they're getting their money from, <laughs> but they went crazy. The fact that we can talk about the game without ever really playing it. Once again, me marketing, getting into our brains wherever it's possible. But yeah, authenticity sells. And, you know, I think you perfectly described it as, yes, sometimes you want that person who has the lived experience and can bring that flavor to, you know, a character and can bring that extra bit of oomph to the character to make them feel more authentic. But sometimes you just want the best possible voice. And I think you see a lot of that. Uh, nowadays and like voice acting for video games and like i think there's like one voice actor who has voice acted like everybody look at the little mermaid Halle bailey did an incredible job as a white mermaid like she she just played her she played as in her skin tone and it was beautiful and it was a great movie and it you know <laughs> that's a whole other thing about whether or not you know, that whole discussion was bizarre <laughs> to me in terms of why she couldn't play it. But I compare it to voice acting. It's like, it's acting. That's at the end of the day, you are not pretending to be this person. You are just embodying their experiences to try and present it for like for a cartoon, for something like Family Guy. It, it, it comes down to sometimes for me is like, is it that serious? There are absolutely times where it is imperative that you pay respects and you do it the right way. Sometimes they're just acting. That's just what acting is. And so long as you're not doing blackface, I think you should be all right. <laughs> as long, yeah, as long as you're not making it hurtful. And, I, you know, that's kind of the conclusion we came to that episode is as long as you're not doing it in a hurtful yeah. way, as long as you're doing it in a way of I'm doing a job and I feel like I'm the best person for this job. And, you know, sometimes, yeah, you know, you want to hire somebody based on what fits that character. But sometimes somebody also fits that character that might not be exactly what you're looking for. And in the voice acting space, I don't know if anyone forgets, you don't get to see the person voice no, acting. No, you can't see them. <laughs> I've always thought that. Like whenever voice acting conventions are just bizarre because you walk up to people and you're like, I know you because you've heard their voice everywhere. 
I get people, I meet people and they go, do I, like, I? you seem really familiar. Like, do you, what do you do for work? And I say, like, I'm a voice artist. And they go, oh my God, I've heard you in ads. Like, because they know what my voice sounds like. And while my voice artist voice is, in my opinion, really dissimilar to my speaking voice. I mean, you can disagree, but I don't feel like I am my my career, if that makes sense. Like what I speak into the microphone, I don't see that as how I present myself and the way I talk normally. So it's always interesting. I've even noticed it multiple times throughout this episode. And I noticed that like as I'm reading the news story, it's a very different Adam mm-hmm. than when we're just having conversations back and forth. I, I got a, <laughs> not changing my voice. I just got a very scratchy uh, throat today. Um <laughs> But yeah, you know, you kind, of, <laughs> you kind of play that character and sometimes that character is not exactly, you know, who you are. But once again, kind of getting back to that parasocial relationships and how this all kind of wraps together. It's sometimes you do have to be a little different just so, you know, Beyonce isn't Beyonce when she goes home. You know, she's a completely different person. Taylor Swift isn't Taylor Swift when she goes home. You know, these are people that are saying this is who I am to the public. But when I'm by myself. I'm somebody else. And some people do live that life. But most of the time, people are going to go home. They're going to be a different self. And we need to respect that. And we need to understand how we can be healthy when having, hey, you know, I love Taylor Swift. I mean, I just saw that the USA Today is hiring a specific Taylor Swift reporter. So obviously those things (laughs) exist. My God, she's an empire. (laughs) She's an empire. Oh, my gosh. She freaking, her concert in Seattle was so loud. It was the same loudness as an earthquake. I saw that as well. Yeah. But it's one of those things where you just have to kind of realize that, at the end of the day, we're all just people and we all just have to have the same interactions. You know, the interaction me and you are having should be the same interaction I'm having with Taylor Swift or you're having with Harry Styles. Like, obviously, yeah, it can be a little starstruck. But at the end of the day, they're just people and they're just really good at something. That is so important to remember that every single person on this planet is just a person. And also remember that most of your favorite creators, even just listening to the Water Cooler Talk podcast, you're on right now. When that mic goes off and you walk away from the computer, I don't know what your wind down routine is, but for me, it's usually silence. I'm usually just I get I get like a high zoned out. After, me like, too. A conversation. Like I'm like yeah, just me like too. it's like I just snorted like a whole pound of cocaine. Man, I'm fucking cross eyed after I record episodes or after I'm editing. Like when I'm on, I'm on, and I'm here, and I'm going to be a hundred percent present with you as you are with me. But you've got to remember that all creators are the same in that sense. When they turn that camera on in the same way that a tv show is going to go in five four three and then motion two and one Mm -hmm. as soon as that camera starts talent know to be on and as soon as it's off they're a different person so remember that what you are seeing is very contrived and you know manufactured i love that lucy i'm I'm gonna ask you to wrap it up one more time lucy we have now come to my favorite part of the podcast where i get to hand my show which one australian listener commented it's a bit daggy. The theme song is as dodgy as they come. Shut the f- Off to you to close out however you like, to use everything you have ever learned in your life to leave the listeners wanting more. And he- here, I'll-, I'll throw the challenge to you, Lucy, yeah. the chance to share your talents with our global audience by ending this episode in an accent of your choice. But, you know, only if it's something that truly feels right, truly feels authentic. Lucy, the stage is set, the lights burn bright, and the floor is yours. 
close out today's show. First of all, to whoever wrote that about your intro, shut the fuck up. <laughs> when I listened to that, I thought it was gold. I thought your out of key singing was marvelous and exactly <laughs> what that intro requires. But mm-hmm. ahem, exactly. Ray, thanks for listening to the Water Cooler podcast. Oh my God, that's a hard name to read in a Scottish accent. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't think that one through. Uh, I have been your guest today, Lucy, spelled L-U-C-E-Y, because we do some really weird things to get a good domain name these days on the internet. Name's actually spelt normally, but on the internet, L-U-C-E-Y. You can find Learning Tings wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube, as the link was just given. And we do a deep dive into any random topic that I decide is tickling my fancy each week and come out the other end as a community. And as always, I'm guessing reach out to the Water Cooler podcast for episode suggestions, article suggestions. Yes, Tamiko, thank you very much. Please don't have a weird relationship with me since I shared your name on the podcast. <laughs> but thank you for listening. It's been an absolute blast to be on the uh, show with you. Yeah, thank you very much. As I said, you know, kind of when we first started this, you know, I think good conversations happen when they're supposed to happen, and I'm glad it happened today. Uh, but yeah, it was just so fun to talk with someone in the same space. You know, I think I've been bringing on a lot of experts lately because I'm interested in something, right? I right. want to know more yeah. about it. And obviously, you know, you have this background that I was interested in, but at the same time, you have the same experiences that I'm going through. We're going yeah. all through these things together and we understand these it's things niche, together. It's isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, we're, you know, we're on the lifeboat together and we both understand, oh, we might be fucked a little bit. <laughs> but no, I appreciate having this conversation and connecting on things that it's sometimes hard to talk with you know, other people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even just mic etiquette, I find some of my guests, I'm like, what are you, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Get a mic. I think it's like 50 bucks. <laughs> Cheaper in America. Well, listeners, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, the show will be over. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not. Because they're real. This was a incredibly fun episode. Thank you guys for listening. The conversation uh, felt like, you know, like when you see that old friend that you haven't really seen in a really long time and you guys just immediately jump back into it. It's like you just saw each other the other day. That's what this conversation felt like to me. So please enjoy a short clip from Lucy's podcast, Learning Tings. And make sure to share with her the water cooler talk love and leave a positive rating and review of her show wherever you end up listening. And of course, our show too. (laughs) Enjoy. So Judy Garland was going to be Dorothy Gale, but she was warned that she had to slim down quickly. She was to go into alternate days of fasting. She was given veneers. She had a new wig sewed on. She was hardly able to keep up with her, like, mandatory schooling in order to achieve her high school diploma. But, like, no one gave a fuck. So this teacher, Rose Carter, was assigned to Judy that every minute of the day, in between little moments where they'd fix the lighting or fix her makeup or change something about the set, that is when the teacher would come on and try to teach Judy. Like, how how are you meant to learn Pythagoras' theorem in those circumstances? I hardly learnt them in a traditional classroom. Now, the actress that played the Wicked Witch of the West, Maggie Hamilton, became a sort of ally to Judy on the set of The Wizard of Oz. And, like, this is a weird sentence to say because she didn't have many. It's really sad and shocking to hear that the four main male cast members, so, like, Tin Man, the Lion, the Scarecrow, am I missing one? They apparently played against her. 
Even though she was a 16-year-old girl and just trying to make her way and being treated like shit, they played against her in the film instead of with with her because they were worried she was going to upstage her. Not like the film was about her or anything, but suppose, yeah, okay. So Maggie, because she was older, she'd been in the industry for a, a little longer, she became pretty worried about Judy and she noticed that Judy seemed to be ill sometimes, but she didn't know why. But she did hear a rumor about pills. So she asked Judy. She asked her about the truth about the pills and and she was like, why don't you refuse? Like, why are you taking them? To which Judy apparently just said, well, I just can't seem to go to sleep or wake up without them anymore. When Wizard of Oz wrapped, Judy was so excited because it also coincided with when she was going to graduate high school. Like they go to school on set, but then they're able to be assigned to like a specific school to go to to attend their graduation ceremony. And she was so excited for it. Like she showed Maggie her graduation dress and she was just so thrilled. But immediately after filming Rap, she was sent on this huge press tour. She was pretty sad about it, but like didn't kick up a fuss because she was always told never to do that. But Maggie Hamilton, who, you know, wanted to go into bat for her, she called up the publicist company at MGM and was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, this isn't fair. She really wanted to do this. She offered to call someone, like anyone. She was like, is there anyone I can call to see if we can, like, make a, a tiny change to the scheduling and and let this girl go to her graduation? But this publicist woman was like, I, I don't think there's anything you can do. These orders came direct from Mr. Meyer. Now, interestingly... The big song, Over the Rainbow, was initially cut from the film. Like, it was in the original cut, but when they were going through the final stages of editing and watching, they thought that it was too cheesy and sentimental, and they were like, okay, get that out of the film. But then just before release, they realised the first half of the film was just a little bit too low-paced, and it was technically a musical, so they were like, okay, uh, just put it back in, because they didn't have time to go back and re-record a new musical number. But it's just funny to think that, like, there's so many stories like that where, like, the biggest song of a movie or the biggest scene was almost never in it. Now it's time to cover some really shitty, gross stuff about The Wizard of Oz. Yay! Now, apparently the cast was, like, close to 9,000 because they needed a lot of little people. Um, I read that that's the most PC word to refer to them as. But I also like munchkins, what they were called in the movie. And to absolutely nobody's surprise, um, apparently the munchkins would grope Judy uh, just for fun. They thought it was like the funniest thing in the world to stick a hand under her dress and grope her. And they were all over 40. So that's cool. Uh, Judy was also one of the lowest paid main cast members of the film, second only to the dog. Toto made $125 per week. And after her cuts, Judy Collins made $250 a week for The Wizard of Oz. And then just to, to tie it up with a really nice, neat little bow, there's a scene where it snows um, and the, the substance of which this snow was made of was just, just pure asbestos. Uh, they apparently tried other things, but asbestos was the only thing that looked best on camera. So there's that. 